Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Once again, thank you for being here. Today, I think we're going to begin to turn a corner. For the last 21 weeks, and I initially had anticipated the class maybe lasting seven weeks, but during the last 21 weeks, you remember, we have been taking the first two chapters of Genesis and looking at what God's purpose was in creation, that in creating Adam and Eve, putting them in a garden, God's purpose was that mankind should be his image bearers. Remember 126 of Genesis, let us make man in our image after our like, uh, according to our likeness. And that they would live in this garden of Eden, and as Adam and Eve would pursue God and obey him and fulfill the three mandates that God gave, fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, take dominion, and work and keep the garden. Remember, working and keeping the garden or terminologies that, terminologies that you see in Numbers chapter 3, 7, and 8 that have to do with the taking care of the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness. And as man would do this, the earth would then begin to become filled with the image of God, that God's rule and reign through man would be distributed throughout the earth so that the earth would become the place of God's dwelling, God's temple. This was God's purpose that he would have a people with whom and among whom he would dwell so that in these people the glory of God and the rule of God and the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God and the will of God and etc. of God would be clearly demonstrated and filling all that there was upon the earth. So this is why God has created. So that his glory, who he is and how he is, and all about God would be manifestly made clear through his people. And you remember the central issue of man being able to do this, the central way that Adam and Eve, especially Adam specifically, was to be able to be the image bearer of God was through the issue of obedience. Remember in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18, or is it 16 and 17 rather? I always go a little further than I need to in that. And the Lord says to Adam, what? Here are the trees. See the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. And so man was to be God's image and was given the opportunity to image God and to dwell in the eternal rest, the seventh. Remember, God completed his work at the end of the sixth. And then he established the seventh as a holy day, the day of Sabbath, the day of rest. And so as man obeyed God through this period of probation, this period of obedience, Man was to be taken into the seventh, if you would. Not necessarily a 24-hour day, but a relational content. The Sabbath being a relational thing more than a day thing. And he was to live in the eternal seventh of God to be proclaiming in a relational context as God's sons and daughters 
the majesty of God. And the basis of that was man's obedience. So Adam is told, essentially, if you obey and through your obedience, you will earn or merit this relationship. Now you see, when we hear that, we should wince. We should wince because we have been taught all our lives, hopefully correctly, that no one can earn or merit God's favor. Have we been taught that? Isn't that a fundamental of the Christian faith? Yes. But you see, it wasn't that way originally, and we have to make sure we see that. Because Adam's relationship with God was based on Adam's ability to merit, earn, or work, or keep, or obey. And if Adam did that, Adam then and his progeny, his, the people who come forth from him, his kids, would then become the people of God upon the earth within the context of Adam having obeyed, and if you would, Adam having merited for his progeny their ability to be in this relational context with God. That's extremely significant and important. Because you remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate, sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, we read in Romans 5, remember that? 5, 12, all sinned. You remember? Because we were all in Adam. He was our representative head. He represented and he contained in himself all of mankind. All of mankind was in Adam. Yes, we believe in an Adam and an Eve. Can you imagine that? We believe that. Why? The Bible says it. Jesus affirmed it. Paul teaches it. So one day I may stand before God and he said, hey, you didn't understand. Okay, but I don't want to stand before God. I'm not going to stand before God. And he said, you didn't believe me. I may miss a few things, but I don't want it be. I want stupidity or ignorance to be my problem, not unbelief. Amen? I don't want to be one who rejects the Word of God. I just didn't understand some stuff. But the whole ability, the whole issue of being able to fulfill the mandates of God rested upon one central issue. What was it? Obedience. Obedience. So Adam sinned and everything fell apart. And so for all the years until we come to this morning, we've been showing that God, through various types and shadows, through various means, using people as pictures of reality then, but saying, here's what it looks like today in a small, typical kind of way. But this represents a fulfillment that's coming. And so as we look at the Old Testament, as we move progressively forward, we see God giving us glimpses through people and circumstances and relationships and activities and nations and things that are going on, we see glimpses of God moving His purpose forward to a time when the fulfillment will come. And so in all of these pictures, we see bits and pieces of the truth, of the fulfillment. 
But in and of themselves, they are not the fulfillment. And in and of themselves, they fail because yet God's person to fulfill his will and purpose completely has not yet come upon the scene. So all of these pictures, if you would, fail to really complete and finish God's will. And that's his will that they not do it because he knows he's moving toward the fulfillment. So that's where we've been. I don't want to have to reteach this morning all of what we've done. We'd be here for seven or eight hours. I don't mind that, but it may be that you don't want to have to go through all that again. So that's where we've been for 21 weeks. So this morning, let's pick it up. After 400 years of silence since Israel's last prophet, who was the last prophet of the Old Testament? Look at the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. What is it? Malachi. Once Malachi completes his prophetic word, once God works through and speaks through and writes through Malachi, the prophetic announcement, the messages of God, the activity as far as Israel is concerned that it can see and hear through these messengers, these prophets, these administrators of the covenant, Everything closes down for over 400 years. 400 years of absolute silence from God. Now, it's not that God is silent, but silent as far as these messengers and as these prophets are concerned. God is still obviously very much at work. 400 years of silence. And now after 400 years, after hundreds and hundreds of years of history, after several thousand years since and he ate, finally, the Lord is ready to bring forth the fulfillment of what he's been promising. Finally, finally. And why do I say it this way? Why do I take time this morning to, in a, in a, a very short period of time, capture where we have been? Because I want us to not only read the Word and understand it intellectually or in our minds, but maybe sometimes more importantly, to feel the Word, to feel it. How many of us, and I would imagine all of us to some extent, have been waiting for something good to happen, an anniversary, a birthday, a relative, the birth of a child, something wonderful. And we get closer and closer, and then finally the day is here. Do you feel it? And if you've had that kind of experience, you feel something. You feel a crescendo. You feel it building up. I want us to be like that this morning as we begin to look at these scriptures concerning the fulfillment. Think about it from God's perspective. Finally, I'm ready. I'm ready. Think about it, the angels. He's ready. It's about to begin. Finally, all this work, all this preparation, all these years, all this hope, and then, ah, it didn't happen this time. Maybe then, ah, it didn't happen. Maybe this part, ah, this time, God is ready to put the reality of his promise on the line and announce it. 
You see, he is ready to inaugurate his kingdom. Why do I call it kingdom? Why is it called kingdom? Because you remember in Genesis 1.28, there are two mandates, multiply and fill. Remember that? And then what's the second mandate in the second part of Genesis 1.28? Have dominion, rule and reign. God, king, we who are vice regents with God, ruling and reigning. It has to do with a king and a kingdom. So this is all about God's kingdom finally coming upon the earth and filling the earth. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 were about. And this is why we begin to see the emphasis of the kingdom of God coming upon the earth. Because it is the beginning of the fulfillment of that which was desired by God through that mandate in Genesis 1.28. And it begins this morning as we talk about it. And it will culminate when? In Revelation 21 and 22. Finally the culmination. But now we're beginning to get into the actual construction and presence of a kingdom on earth and it will grow and grow and go and go until it's consummated in the return of Christ and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. Amen? Amen. This is what we're part of. This is what we are part of that activity of that great flow. So finally, God is ready to inaugurate his kingdom through his Davidic king. Remember David. David being an example of the kind of king that God will use. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that your throne forever, your uh, kingdom forever. Remember those forever words. And of course, it doesn't mean anything about David personally because he died. But there's something about who this man, whom this man represents, this man even in his faulty and failing condition, represents as a king, God's king. He represents as the ruler and over Israel, this theocracy, this, this government of Israel ruled by a king, but the king as a vassal of God himself. So that is the God rule of Israel through an earthly ruler, a theocracy. That's what's going on in David. One day it's going to be fulfilled as another man who will be God's ruler over his kingdom will rule his people. Are you beginning to hear it and sense it and understand what's happening here? So finally, God's king, his Davidic king, who would fulfill his dominion mandate. He's coming. He's coming. This man is the prophesied seed of the woman. Remember the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will stomp the head or crush the head of the seed of the serpent. This antagonism, this opposition. God's people, the seed of the woman, especially one man within this remnant of people, God's people moving forward. In this, one, in this nation, in this people, one man will come forth as the seed among a national seed. And in this seed of the woman, this prophet, priest, and king. Remember we talked about Adam being a prophet, priest, and king. Can't go back and rehash that. You just have to go back to other uh, uh, lessons. But he was to be a prophet, priest, and king. And so here we have the seed of the woman who would deliver his people from their bondage to sin and death through his victory over ser say, the serpent. He's coming. About ready to be announced. As a result, God's theocracy, God's theocratic rule over Israel, over his people, his kingdom on earth would fulfill his original intention for the Garden of Eden. See, again, we must see the Bible as a continuing, consistent storyline. We must see it as one, 
rather than a bunch of isolated stories. It is a continuity. It is a continuity of revelation. This morning, let's just look at some of the scriptures that describe two things. We're going to talk about the scriptures that show the preparation for and the announcement of God's king. So we can just read a lot of scripture this morning. I hope that's okay with most of you. So let's be looking in your Bibles. You might be anticipating looking at some of these things. Therefore, and let me open my Bible to, I'm um, not like you, kind of like, oh, okay, we're supposed to read the Bible this morning. It's always nice to read a Bible, you know, when you're in a church. So let me read through some of these. I'm going to read through them pretty quickly and, and try to cover as much, hopefully, all the ground that I can in the time that we have. By the opening of the New Testament, with the opening pages of the New Testament, the Lord has fully prepared Israel prophetically, and he has prepared the world politically, remember the Roman Empire, for the birth of the king. So by the time we get to the first page of the New Testament, Israel has been prepared prophetically, and the world has been prepared politically. God is ready now. Everything is in place. God is ready to move. Therefore, here's what we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 17. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division uh, was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God is getting ready. Now, what prophecy does this announcement remind us of? Remember we went through various prophecies over the last few weeks telling us that God is going to do some things to bring about the fulfillment of the coming of his king upon the earth. Remember this prophecy, Isaiah 9 two: The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of... Well, I'm sorry, let me read the rest of the scripture first before I do that. Let's go to 67 to 79. It's going to make more sense to you if I actually do what the Lord told me to do. 67 to 79 of Luke chapter 1. Remember, John is going to be born. Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. This is sometime later. You know, John is, is able to give this prophecy after the son is born. And Zechariah and, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Remember, a Davidic king, a king from the house of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. 
the oath that, that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, when you read that, you remember this prophecy from Isaiah 9 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them, the light has shined. You see, we're getting ready. The time is being prepared. God's king is coming. Let's look at Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And let's see how Matthew opens his gospel. He does it very specifically. These guys are doing what they're doing, being led by the Spirit for very specific purposes. So this is, has meaning to it. Matthew 1.1 reads this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, before I go into any more detail, because we're not going to go into a lot of detail here. When you read that, does that today make more continuity sense to you than it did before we started this class? Do you see how Matthew immediately begins to identify the birth of Jesus with the rest of the Old Testament? Do you see that? Look at the terminology, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. What Matthew is telling us in this verse is this. He's using the genealogy of Jesus. Remember the genealogy in, the, in, in uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, then chapter 5 of Genesis, the genealogy, the generations of. He's going back and using that terminology to say, this is a continuing genealogy over the generations through, from Adam all the way down to here so that this king has come through this line of people. He will show us that this man, this man's birth, is prophesied, is of the seed of the woman. This is the continuity of the work of God. So these genealogies, especially in the New Testament, are critically important. They're not something just to read and kind of glance, oh, I don't want to look at it. It shows God's faithfulness and God's persistence in keeping His promise. So it's important to see these genealogies. They are wonderful. Year after year, generation after generation, uh, hundreds of years after hundreds of years, thousands upon thousands of years, God is at work to do what He said He will do. That's where we are today. So Matthew is using the genealogy of Jesus to show us that Jesus is God's promised King. What does He say? The Son of, look at your verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, comma, the son of Abraham. And so with that terminology, Matthew has immediately connected Jesus with the Davidic king. 2 Samuel 7, remember that? The covenant that God established with David. That David would have a ruler over his throne forever. And then Abraham. Abraham would be the father of the faithful. He God entered into covenant with Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 17. We see an elaboration of that. And so Abraham's, the God's covenant with Abraham says, 
I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you blessings. And I'm going to give you kings. Kings will come from you. In chapter 17 of uh, Genesis, the God's covenant with Abraham. Kings. What kings? David and Solomon and all the rest until the king comes. And all of those promises, all of that covenant work, that covenant is that relational structure in which God will accomplish his purpose of Genesis 1 and 2. That they will have a land, that they will be a people, that there will be blessings, that they will be rulers. All of that is in Genesis 1 and 2 and is now being proclaimed as having been begun to be fulfilled in the birth of this one man. So note the emphasis again, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Also note this, the word son. The word son obviously in these contexts has a physical thing, the reproductive issue. But with God, the word son is a word that has to do with the closest and most intimate of relationships. And so when God starts talking about my son, he's not talking about a natural generation here. He's talking about the most intimate of relationships. The word weos in the Greek has to do <clears throat> with certainly biological things, but it more importantly has to do with relationship. So what he's saying here, there's a king coming, but he's a son. There's a promise from Abraham coming, but he's a son. He's going to be a king, but he's going to be the son. He's going to fulfill Abraham's covenant, but he's going to fulfill it because he's the son. You see that relational context that God is emphasizing in this. <clears throat> Let's go to Luke chapter 1 again. We're going to go back and forth between Luke and Matthew, so let's keep our fingers in those two places. Luke verse, chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. In the sixth month, now remember, John's father, Zechariah has been given a prophecy that he's going to have a son. His wife's going to have uh, a child. She's going to be pregnant. Then we get this one. This is after. This is about six months later. <clears throat> In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Why is that significant? It's the Davidic line. It's the Davidic promise. There will be a king, a Davidic king on the throne. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled in the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting may this be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Remember the forever comments in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, God is ready. You see the connection here of what the New Testament begins to tell us has been prophesied and has been manifested through types and shadows for thousands of years, and finally we're coming to the fulfillment of that which has been going on. <clears throat> Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. 
But as Joseph considered these things, behold, remember the, about the, his wife or his betrothed being pregnant? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. You see, why is it important? David, David, David. You see the connection here. It's not just, hey, your daddy's name was David. This is solidly within the context of God's promises and his faithfulness to do what he said he would do. Son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the prophet was spoken. Remember, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So you remember, in this birth announcement, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz. You know, you're not going to be overrun by Israel and, uh, and, and his, and his uh, combination with Syria. Ask me for uh, a sign and I'll give it to you. Ahaz, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And of course the Lord said, no, you should ask. When I tell you to ask for it, ask for it. He says, I'm going to give you, a, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And Matthew takes that by the Spirit and says, this is the prophecy that is being fulfilled in this particular birth of uh, Mary. Listen to the other prophecy in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, David, king, dominion, rule, reign, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God has brought forth another man who will fulfill what Adam lost in his disobedience. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. And to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what's being announced here. And that's what's happening. You remember Mary's response in chapter 2 of, uh, of Luke. Mary's response is a song of praise. And when you look at this song of praise in chapter 2, Mary's response it's very similar and reminiscent, if you would, of Hannah's praise song. Remember in 1 Samuel when the Lord says you're going to bear a son and when Samuel is born. The whole beginning, first 10 verses of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel is a praise to God. The two are very similar in context here. Two women who shouldn't have been birthing children. Hannah because she was barren and Mary because she wasn't married. And again, the intervention of God to bring about into the natural, his supernatural work. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And in these days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was, first reg this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with his wife, 
Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Again, why is that significant? Why is Bethlehem significant? It's the birthplace of David. Again, connecting this birth of this child to the Davidic dynasty, to the Davidic promise. Well, listen to this, this, uh, these uh, two prophecies, 1 Samuel 6, 16, 1 and Malachi 5, 2 and 4. The Lord said to Samuel, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. So the man who will be anointed as king over Israel is from Bethlehem. And then Malachi, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, this one who is being birthed into the world has been around forever, just as long as God has been around. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came forth for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So he's born. The king is born. Now, what is heaven's reaction to this? What is the reaction of heaven? Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 14. The king is here. The king is born. What is heaven going to say about this? Chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds and out in the field <clears throat> keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All of a sudden the orchestra of heaven began to burst forth with great praise. The good news. For today I bring you good news of a great joy. That word good news is the word that we get evangelism from, to evangelize, the evangel. And that's the word that has to do with the gospel, the good news. Finally, God's good news, that news and that work which God has been promising and prophesying for several thousand years, finally the good news is here in the birth of this boy, in this little child. Finally, there's, the promise is kept. The good news of what? Of a great joy. Of a great joy. Whose joy? You know, we think often it's our joy, and it is our joy. But primarily, whose joy is this? It is the joy of God. It is the joy of God to finally bring forth this one who in himself and by himself will fully, finally, and forever fulfill God's creative purposes. Finally, he's here. What a joy it is to God. You remember the joy that we get 
when we give a present to someone, a children or a loved one, another loved one or grandchildren. And it is our joy to watch what this present will do for the recipients, right? It's our joy, God's great joy in giving us the greatest present the world has ever needed. The heavens exploded. After 700 years, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. Remember, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this one will be the ruler, the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's here. He's here. Finally, after 21 weeks, we are finally now beginning to look at the actual, on the ground, in reality, fulfillment of God's promises since the very beginning. Let's look at the announcement of the king. So no wonder, exact, no wonder the heavenly explosion, I want you to say that one more time. No wonder the heavenly explosion, no wonder all of a sudden, suddenly there was with the angel a heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom God is well pleased. Let's look at the announcement, the announcement, announcement of the king. 30 years later, after all these birth announcements that we have just read, 30 years later, John is baptizing in the wilderness. Remember that? Remember John the Baptist is baptizing in the wilderness. We just rushed forward 30 years. Remember Zechariah's prophecy about his son. Remember in Luke 1.76, Zechariah was told this, and he was speaking this in prophecy about his own son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Remember that? You will go before the Lord. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Zechariah is given this prophecy about this little baby. Thirty years later, here's what we read in chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why all of a sudden this kingdom revelation and terminology? Because the kingdom represents the dominion, the rule and reign of God as we saw God desiring it in that mandate in Genesis 1.28. Connect it to where it needs to be in the beginning. That finally God will rule the earth and all of his people over his kingdom through his man who will obey all of his ways. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So Isaiah prophesied this 700 and so years before. Zechariah prophesies it at John's birth. And now we see it happening in the first three verses of Matthew chapter 1. And so now God uses John to announce and anoint his king for ministry. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. And Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus 
it was fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What Old Testament prophecy is this fulfilling? Listen to what 1 Samuel 16 says when Samuel is commissioned by God to go to the house of Jesse to anoint someone to be king after Saul has disobeyed and has been rejected by God. And the Lord says to Samuel, Arise, anoint David, anoint this man, anoint David, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. You see, God's David has arrived in Christ, the man after God's own heart who will do all of God's bidding. So what happens? He is being anointed. By whom? The Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus in a bodily form, remember, in the dove form, and the Holy Spirit is anointing Jesus for his Davidic role of king. He is anointing Jesus as David was anointed by Samuel. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, commissioning and anointing and empowering Jesus for the work before him. Now remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse seven, um, 3, 17, what does the word say? And the heaven opened, and what does God say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember that? The same kind of terminology is in chapter 3 of Luke also. My beloved Son. Well, what does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? Remember 2 Samuel 12, 25. Bathsheba and David have another child. The first one died, remember, because of sin. Well, she conceives and she has another child, and David and Bathsheba call his name Solomon. But in verse 25 of chapter 12, 1 Samuel, the Lord tells Nathan, go tell him his name is what? Jedediah. Jedediah. What does Jedediah mean? Beloved of God. Jedediah, Solomon, is God's beloved son. Typing or picturing whom? the beloved son who will come and be God's ruler upon the earth over God's people. You see the tie, the connection here. It's the same terminology. So with this reference, God is affirming that Jesus is his Jedediah who will build his house, remember? Because Solomon is commissioned and enthroned to build the house of God. And God is commissioning and anointing Jesus to do the work and ministry of David first for preparing all the work to build the house. And then as Solomon, he will rule and reign and be enthroned, and then the house will be built. And when do we see that house being built? Where does that house begin to be built? Where do we see that? In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. That's the construction of the house. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and begins to build the house of God. Do you remember chapter 2 of Acts, the day of Pentecost? That's when that's fulfilled. See, Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, as I already said, and he is anointed for this. Following this anointing by the Spirit, Jesus is led into the wilderness to encounter the temptation of the devil as God's new Adam. Remember my emphasis in the beginning. Adam was given the opportunity through his obedience 
to rule and reign over God's people in the name of God. His obedience would merit that, would earn it. And so, remember in chapter 3 of Genesis, hath God said when the enemy came in and offered Adam another different kind of an opportunity to sin because then he would be like God. You remember that? Knowing good and evil. You remember that verse? And so Adam capitulated to the hath God said. But you see Jesus in chapter 4 of Matthew and also in chapter 4 of Luke going into the wilderness. And he faces the same temptation. Hath God said. Do you believe his word? Do you trust his word? Is this what God's doing? Isn't there another way? And you can look at the temptation. We won't go into details on these. And Jesus obeys. Jesus obeys. Thus establishing himself as the obedient second Adam. As the one who has completely kept all of God's will and therefore in that obedience has merited or has been given a reward for his obedience. He has been rewarded for his obedience. And what is his reward for that obedience? God will give him an inheritance. He's going to get something because he obeyed. What is that inheritance? The church. The church. You see, he did what Adam was to do. Adam sinned, but Christ keeps the law, the obedience of God's will. And in that, he earns the right to inherit. We don't like that terminology because it's not for us. We don't earn anything in and of ourselves. We receive everything by grace. But we receive it based on the obedience and earning ability and accomplishment of the Son of God who did the work and will of God. Therefore, God gave him the kingdom, the church. And we receive that how? By grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And that's not of yourselves because it is what? The gift of God, lest any man should boast. Only Jesus Christ can boast of a being obedient. Can you say amen? Only he. Why? Because he was obedient. Why? Because he's the son of God. Because he's done everything necessary to accomplish God's will as a man. And in that obedience we stand in him before the throne of God, accepted, completed, forgiven, received as his children forever. You see how central obedience is to the work of God. We receive it not on the basis of our merit, but we receive it on the basis of His merit being given to us as a free gift to us received by faith. Do we understand how that works? Because I think sometimes we get this obedience thing a little off sometimes. So where Adam failed, Jesus won the day by fulfilling God's requirement of that Genesis 1, 16, I'm sorry, 2, 16 and 17 obedience. Adam failed. 
but Jesus won the day. Now Jesus is ready to proclaim and inaugurate God's kingdom on earth to begin the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose to be consummated at the end of the age. So next week what we'll begin to do is look at the work of Jesus that fulfills the mandates of God to bring us to the conclusion of this study. So next week or the next two weeks we'll be concluding, I think we'll be doing that. So thank you so much for being here. Thank <clears throat>